Okay, uh, welcome everyone to this uh, LSE public lecture. Um, before, uh, before we start, I'd just like to remind everybody that there is a fire assembly point on Sheffield Street, uh, just outside the Student Union, um, and that there is also a book sale at the end of the, uh, the event, which will take place at around 8 p.m., uh, this is the book, so you'll be able to get copies outside, um, and there'll be a whole a, a mini procedure. You have to write your name on a post-it, and then uh, come here and get it signed uh, by Anne Pettifor, uh, if she's willing to. Um, and events are, are recorded, uh, so please make sure that your mobile phones are on silent uh, before we start the event. Um, and I'd uh, just like to remind the uh, Twitter hashtag, which I was told was, yeah, it's, um, it's hashtag LSE money. That's the hashtag in, in case you want to tweet about it. So um, I would like to welcome uh, Anne Pettifor here, uh, who's our very welcome guest tonight. Um, so what's going to happen uh, tonight is that uh, she's going to talk for about uh, 30 and 40 minutes, uh, and then there's going to be a Q&A session, and you'll be able to ask her all sorts of questions. Um, Anne Pettifor's latest book is uh, The Production of, of Money, uh, and it was uh, published in 20, 2017, and it explains the nature of money and the monetary system. Uh, and you will see that it's, uh, uh, well, th there are some uh, quite uh, interesting ideas about the, the creation of money in particular. Uh, back in 2003, uh, she was editor of the Real World Economic Outlook, uh, uh, published in, uh, by Paul Grave. And she was one of the first ones uh, and only ones uh, to predict the uh, financial crisis. And that actually came uh, eventually into a book uh, which was called The Coming First World Debt Crisis. She also led a campaign, uh, Jubilee 2000, uh, which actually led to the cancellation of, uh, I think the exact number is about $100 uh, billion of debt owed to uh, the poorest countries. Uh, she's director of Prime Policy Research in Macroeconomics, a network of economists that promote uh, Keynes's monetary theory and policies. And she's fully engaged in ongoing debates about uh, the British and global economy and co-authored, as some of you might have heard of it, uh, Prime's radical analysis of 100 years of UK public debt uh, and its impact, which is called the economic consequences of uh, Mr. Osborne. Uh, in 2015, she was the leader of the British, uh, sorry, the leader of the British Labour, Labour Party, named her one of the um, of a council of seven economic advisers, and she's also the trustee of a British organisation called Promoting Economic uh, Pluralism, or uh, PP. So. Um, Without further ado, uh, I'm going to let uh, Anne Pettifor come to the front and, and tell us all about, uh, about money. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you. I'm so impressed that you're all here tonight and there can't be many Australian football uh, fans here or 
Nigerian football fans because uh, I know they're playing Australia's playing New Zealand and Nigeria's playing Argentina. So I'm just impressed that that so many of you are here and not watching football. Well done. Um, I want to say this: I was a member of the Council of Advisors for uh, appointed by Jeremy Corbyn, but. That was subsequently dissolved when uh, most of the council members resigned after the EU referendum because they felt that uh, the Labour Party had not done enough to win the referendum. So there is no longer a council, um, but I'm, uh, I, I didn't resign, but I was the only one left, so the thing really dissolved then. <clears throat> so I, I've got a, a rather grim title here for you tonight, and it's quite a heavy uh, lecture, but it's a really, really important issue. And it's really important now because we're at a sort of turning point in history, in my view. And I think we societies, both in Europe and across the United States and the world, are under threat, under threat of the rise of fascism and nationalism, and that this in turn is a threat also to the global economy and to the global financial system. And one of the things I think we have to do to avoid that threat, and who knows, it might be too late, and this advice may not be taken, is to stabilize and subordinate the financial system to the interests of society. So that's why this is a rather earnest lecture, but it's, I believe, of extreme importance. So I want to begin by quoting a wonderful German uh, economic uh, historian, professor, philosopher, actually, Professor Joseph Vogel, who at George Soros' Institute of uh, New Economics in 2012 in Berlin, which was a really very meaningful event, uh, said this about the finance sector. Despite all appearances, the recent collapse of the finance economy does not represent the end of an era. The crisis has proved itself as a way to solidify the existing economic order. In consideration of the current situation, one can thus argue that the financial and economic state of emergency in recent years has given rise to a form of government action that resembles a continuous coup d'etat, a continuous coup d'etat, a continuous takeover of the state. And that, I think, is really where we are today. So in February 2018, Corbyn accused bankers of taking the economy hostage and said if the Labour Party wins the next election, that Britain's financial sector will be the servant of, interest, of industry and not the masters of all. So in this lecture, I want to take up that theme and attempt to outline a strategy for subordinating, subordinating the finance sector to the interests of society. But first, I propose to loosely define the sector, next to outline the arenas of contest between finance and society. Finally, I will argue that society has powers to subordinate finance, but that on the whole, and we know it can be done because it has been done before in recent history under the Bretton Woods system, but what it requires is proper understanding by the public of those powers and deliberate monetary action by courageous politicians to manage money and the monetary system, rather than leaving both the sector and the system to the capricious impulses of the invisible hand. No chief executive of a global corporation would abandon the management of their company to forces beyond their control, even if they are affected by those forces. But since the late 1960s, the and since the deregulation of credit and capital mobility, 
the chief executives of nations and the governors of central banks have effectively left the management of the now globalized financial system to self-regulating market forces. Hence, in my view, the increasingly frequent recurrence of catastrophic financial crises. Hence, the continuous coup d'etats of which Professor Vogel speaks. So let's begin by first loosely defining the sector, often wrongly limited to the bankers, but also including what I would call haute finance, literally translated as high finance, and is a reference to the 24-hour trading of the globalized community of financiers, asset managers, bondholders, stock market investors, so-called private equity investors, who are really debt investors, and financial speculators. So in the past, the sector was defined by, for example, President Lincoln as the money power or the money interest. President Roosevelt, in his inaugural speech in 33, described the sector as the money changers. And in a reference to the biblical story of Christ chasing money men out of the temple, complained that the money changers have fled from their high seats in the temple of our civilization. He went on to promise to restore the temple to the ancient truths and to bring back social values more noble than mere monetary profit. Perhaps that's the ambition of Jeremy Corbyn, to bring back social values more noble than mere monetary profit. I take the term finance sector to mean that those that operate within the banking and finance sector as money lenders, rentiers, and speculators in money. The money lending part is the most important because money lending is different from any other kind of sector or activity or investment. Let me explain why. If you were to lend out a lawnmower to your neighbor, the loan would normally take the form of mutual aid, a gift reciprocated between equals. It would be considered improper to demand a price for the loan from one of your social peers. If you were to lend out a surplus of corn or barley or even gold to your neighbours, this could take the form of a gift, but it also could take the form of a sale or a loan that has a price, the rate of interest, for the duration of the loan. In all the above cases, the decision to lend or not to lend, and instead to save or to hoard this surplus, is entirely your own, as Andrea Terzi has argued. Not so with money and money lending. The creation of money does not involve just one party. The decision to lend does not rest with one party alone. Nor does the creation of loan money depend upon land or labor. No, it always takes a pair to create new money. And its creation does not involve either land or labor. And increasingly, it is intangible. So to, to understand just how exploitative money lending can be, we need to understand that while money is brought into existence by the risk-taking of two parties, the lender and the borrower, only one party gets effective control of the assets that are mutually created, the loan, otherwise known as credit or debt, but also the collateral, which the borrower invariably offers up in exchange for a secured loan. Collateral that can be claimed or foreclosed upon by the creditor in the event of default. So it takes two to tango when money is created. Money is only created when the banks find borrowers and when the borrowers find a bank. The, the banks without borrowers are helpless, are powerless. 
and that includes central banks. In Japan, there was a crisis in Japan when the Bank of Japan couldn't lend any money to any institutions because there were no borrowers willing to take the risk of borrowing. Now, collateral is a vital part of the plumbing of the banking system, but also of the globalized shadow banking system, of which more later. So finally, the lender in this process of creating new money determines the price of the loan and of the money, effectively the rate of interest, which generates income for the lender over the term or the duration of the loan. Now, authentic Islamic bank lending takes a different form. The loan or asset is created by both the lender and the borrower, and both become, or are supposed to become under the Islamic law of Reba, stakeholders in the enterprise. In other words, they are both expected to share the capital gains made by the loan for, uh, in the enterprise, but also in the losses. Not so in the Western Christian-based money lending system. While both parties create the asset, the lender makes gains when the enterprise or state is profitable and continues to extract gains often compounding interest on those loans, even when the enterprise or state makes losses. That's the difference between Islamic banking, as it is meant to be, and Western banking. Now, I thought it would be useful to explore the arena, what I call the arenas of struggle between finance and society, because I think that's important to understand why we need to change and we need to subordinate finance. We know from anthropology that clashes for creditor supremacy over debtors date back at least to 3,000 years BC. While there is not time tonight to review the history of those struggles, let me try and outline the economic terrain, the arenas of battle, the scenes of contest between finance and society. The first arena of battle is between those, the owners of existing assets, versus the creators of new assets. The struggles take place between those who effortlessly derive income or rent from the ownership and control of existing assets and wealth, and those that do not own assets but who earn their incomes. The struggle is therefore between those exploiting existing assets like property, bonds, brands, works of art, vintage cars or patents to make effortless capital gains, and those the makers, inventors, and innovators that seek to make profits by creating new assets. This is the struggle that takes place between the finance sector and the productive sector, between the takers, if you like, and the makers. The rentier class are currently transforming the global economy away from the business of making, creating, innovating, growing, and serving society, and, and increasingly towards rent extraction. And so assets are not often sold to customers or users to own, but merely rented or leased out to customers. Think property, think buy to let, think student accommodation and the rent paid to gym clubs. Think of the renting of software, the renting of brands, the Trump Organization brand or Richard Branson's Virgin brand, the renting out of those brands. Think of music, Apple and Spotify and transport, Uber. These are all sectors in which capitalists prefer not to sell their product, but to negotiate or even impose terms and interest rates that generate endless streams of income over time 
and almost effortlessly. So in an era of capital mobility, this has led to the growth of globalized platform rentiers, such as Amazon, Google, Netflix, and Facebook. So these global rent-seeking titans have been joined by millions of ordinary people, often obliged to become rentiers because of low or falling incomes. The business model is extraordinary. Ordinary Uber drivers, for example, are in fact capitalists. They raise or earn the capital to purchase and, and own the asset, a car. They maintain and insure the asset, and I have to tell you, at great expense. Using the Uber app, built in Silicon Valley by techies largely drawing on existing or open source software and attached to a massive database, the hapless capitalist then rents out her car and labor, often for long hours, and at the end of the day hands over fully 20% of the income from every single ride to remote and invisible Uber executives and shareholders based in Silicon Valley. This is an extraordinary business model, right? Workers have been turned into the capitalists. So while Silicon Valley is home to innovators, it is also home to those who are not often creating anything new, just sucking others dry. Thanks to falling incomes and living standards, the Silicon Valley model of rentierism is spreading and becoming embedded in society. So that's one arena of struggle. The second arena of struggle is around interest rates. So back in 1930, Keynes asked this pertinent question, why, if banks can create credit out of thin air, should they refuse any reasonable request for it? And why should they charge a fee for what costs them little or nothing? Building a car, you know, uh, uh, manufacturing Nike boots, all of this takes labor and land and takes uh, the use of labor and land and time and innovation and so on. Creation of money is virtually effortless activity. So why should it cost very much? So the, the rate of interest in an almost effortless activity, it, uh, an activity which is designed to enable us to do what we can do, to create what we can create, is the price fixed by the lender for the business of creating the money and for assessing the risk of generating sufficient revenues to repay the debt. We were once again reminded, most traditionally, most orthodox economists don't think of, uh, of interest as being man-made, but we were once again reminded of how man-made interest rates are when on the 18th of June this year, JP Morgan were fined $65 million for trying to rig the benchmark rate, the average rate of interest supposedly paid by all bank borrowers. It turned out not to reflect real rates on loans, but instead was fixed or rigged by traders in the back offices of banks and by loan assessors under instruction from their bosses. This came as something a shock to mainstream economists that assumes the rate of interest is determined by and subject to market forces. That is not so, the rate of interest is a social construct. Contrary to most economic theory, the rate of interest is not natural or neutral, nor can it be understood as the marginal product of capital or as a return on the part of wealth holders. Its price does not rise because of a shortage or excess of savings. In fact, savings are a consequence of money creation or loan finance and are funded by the creation 
of money or debt or loans. This is really difficult to get our heads, our heads around, but savings are a consequence of credit creation. They don't predate the credit creation. It's not as if the bank dips into savings in its vaults in order to lend to Mrs. Jones when she applies for the mortgage. And it has not been so since 1694 when the Bank of England was founded. And if you don't believe this, then please read uh, the 2014 quarter one, quarterly one bulletin of the Bank of England where all this is clearly explained. So Keynes's great insight was that the rate of interest is influenced not by the demand for savings, as monetarists argue, but the demand for safe or risky assets or collateral. When at a later stage I discuss citizen power over the financial system, this important fact will be pivotal. Keynes understood that those with surplus capital or savings invest their savings for different motives over different periods of time. Some have a need for cash, for immediate use. Second, the second lot have a need for the uh, apply the precautionary motive, the desire for security as to the future equivalent of the cash. And the third group are motivated by speculation, the desire to secure gains by investing the money in projects and knowing better than the market what the future will bring. So those are the three motives of those with surplus capital. Thanks to the privatization of pensions and to the deregulation of the financial system, today asset managed funds, life insurance companies and other fund managers scoop up the nation's savings or pensions into vast pools of cash. According to the Bank of England, there are 400 asset managers managing $63.3 trillion of the world's savings or pensions. These include BlackRock, managing nearly $5 trillion when they were last counted in 2017, Vanguard Asset Management, nearly $4 trillion, and State Street Global Advisors, $2.3 trillion. Now, no traditional bank can manage such large sums of cash. And the British government, for example, only guarantees £75,000 in traditional bank deposits. So asset fund managers can't risk putting their money in banks. This leads them to create, this has led them to create a new form of banking, shadow banking, and to do what Keynes explained they would do, namely to actively seek to transform or exchange that cash for safe collateral or assets yielding gains. Collateral that generates streams of income, unlike the cash, which does not do that. A shortage of such assets or collateral causes the price of the bond or gilt or bunt to rise and the yield to fall because of the way bonds work. Today, as we meet here, Germany's 10-year real rate has dropped to minus 1.88%, as bond yields have fallen like a stone, thanks, in a world of global financial volatility, to Germany's safe haven status. Given these low yields, Financiers have traveled the world in search of safe assets. And one of the outcomes of that search is the massive inflation of an asset property, an outcome that is doing immeasurable harm to society and in particular to the younger generations. So we're in a position, another outcome of the impotence is the impotence of central banks in raising interest rates. When creditors are willing to do what they do to Germany to pay governments to borrow their bonds, we know that something bizarre is going on in the financial system. 
Um, central banks whose power to affect rates across the board was stripped away when markets were given the power to determine rates no, now are not in a position to raise rates despite their desperate desire to do so. Only so far the Federal Reserve has managed to do that. That's one arena of struggle. Another, the third arena of struggle is inflation versus deflation. Struggles are between those mostly debtors that benefit from inflation as the value of their debt is eroded by inflation and those mostly creditors that benefit from the deflation of wages, profits and prices and the resulting rise in the value of debt. Deflation, as Keynes argued so succinctly, involves a transfer of wealth from the rest of the community to the rentier class and to all holders of titles to money just as inflation involves the opposite. In particular, it involves a transfer from all borrowers, that is to say, from traders, manufacturers and farmers, to lenders, from the active to the inactive. Right now, even as the European Central Bank continues its 10-year-long struggle to avoid outright deflation and to raise inflation to 2%, deflationists remain dominant in the Eurozone, enforcing monetary and fiscal policies that closely resemble the deflationary effects of the gold standard of the 1920s and 30s. So it's now well established that those policies indebted and impoverished workers, farmers, manufacturers across Europe, even while they enriched the creditor class, and led to the popular insurrections of the 1930s, which culminated in the rise of fascism. Despite this history, still fresh in the minds of older generations, the financial architecture that is the Euro and the policies of the Eurozone are once again deflationary. As Karl Polanyi predicts in his book, The Great Transformation, society will inevitably take measures to protect itself. And sure enough, just as in the 1930s, European societies are looking to strong men and women, from Marine Le Pen to Matteo Salvini to Viktor Orban, for protection against deflationary, self-regulating, globalized market forces that are undermining their living standards and creating a great deal of insecurity. The fourth arena of struggle is one that I, I could go on about at length, and I'm, I think you better stop me from doing that, and that is the arena of struggle around debt defaults, the restructuring of debt and bankruptcy. It's a really big... I've just come back from Dublin, where, as you know, the, the, the people of Ireland were forced to pay $64 billion to bail out the banks because the banks refused to, be, to accept a, a debt default or restructuring or their own bankruptcy. So the history of bankruptcy law is fascinating for its attempts at resolution of the struggle between lenders and borrowers, creditors and debtors. Charles Dickens's father was imprisoned in Marshall's E prison not far from here for defaulting on 40 pounds and 10 shillings owed to a local baker, John Kerr. On the 23rd of February, 1824, Charles accompanied his father to prison and later described the hell that was that prison in his novels, Little Dorrit, Hard Times and David Copperfield. Only after 1861 could insolvent debtors apply for bankruptcy. Imprisonment for debt only ended as recently as 1869. By that time, creditors had learned something extraordinary, that imprisoning a debtor 
did not generate the income needed for debt repayment. Indeed, by removing the debtor's right to engage in the market and economic activity, creditors were engaging in a form of self-harm. They were removing opportunities to, for getting the debt repaid or for creating new debt. That's what was so enlightening and interesting about the introduction of bankruptcy law finally in the 19th century. So there's no more time to explore this arena of struggle in more detail, but I do want to mention the struggle at international level where there is no insolvency framework or bankruptcy procedure for nations that default on their debts. Creditors exercise great power over sovereigns and effectively dictate terms. As someone that had campaigned hard for a fair international insolvency framework for sovereigns and who was invited extraordinarily by the IMF in 2003 to make a presentation at an international conference of sovereign debtors, creditors, lawyers and economists, this issue is close to my heart. The IMF, as a major creditor itself, proposed a sovereign debt restructuring mechanism. We, all of us civil society advocates, proposed Professor Kunibert Raffer's model, which applied to sovereigns the United States' Chapter 9 procedure for the resolution of local government debt crises. Both proposals were defeated at the 2003 conference by Wall Street creditors, including the notorious vulture fund Elliott Associates, with whom I had lunch on that day, and their friends in the US Treasury, but also by Mexico's finance minister at the time, Mr. Augustin Carstens, now general manager at the Bank for International Settlements. He argued that Mexico had no interest in alienating its creditors. They just wanted to borrow more money. So that went down the pan. So that was the only, that's been the only real attempt at finding an international insolvency framework for the, the orderly resolution of debt crises between nations. To this day, there are no sound procedures for balancing the interests of both sovereign debtors and creditors in resolving international debt crises. As the IMF itself acknowledged, and this was particularly the case in Ireland, where I've just been, and there's a wonderful book that Ashoka Modi, who, is, who was the IMF uh, representative uh, in Ireland during the crisis, has just written excellent, an excellent book on this. But the IMF itself acknowledged that the failure in Ireland to bail in unsecured creditors to a bank rescue that cost Irish taxpayers 64 billion euros. I don't know if you've been to Ireland, but you know its population is only about 4 million. It's a tiny, tiny little country, 64 billion. So this bankrupted Ireland and was based on the view that doing so, and this was the view of Mrs. Merkel defending German banks exposed to Ireland, that, that, a, that a, a bankruptcy, that a, a refusal to pay the 64 billion to, uh, to bail out these banks would have adverse spillover effects on other Eurozone countries, even though such risks were not obvious, says the IMF. So as uh, Bohoslavsky and Professor Kuna Raffa argue in their new book, Sovereign Debt Crises, What Have We Learned? Debt has become a form of political government through a relation of subjection, a tool to bypass democratic institutions and to govern debtor countries by creditors' whim, the replacement of democratic citizenship by market citizenship. The final arena of struggle is capital mobility versus democratic policy autonomy. 
Capital mobility is of great value to international, now globalized financial institutions and creditors. The unfettered movements of money across borders allow financiers to avoid taxation while making profits and capital gains within a country. <coughs> capital mobility allows investors to borrow at the lowest rate in one jurisdiction and to lend at the highest rate in another. To search out the most profitable speculation and to bail out before a property or other asset bubble bursts. To switch into different currencies and then to withdraw quickly when high rates carry trades and speculation precipitate a financial crisis. Indeed, this is the aim of globalization, the erasure of national borders and the creation of self-regulated or deregulated global markets in money, land and labor. The citizens of Dublin or Auckland or Shanghai are not competing with each other for a home, a reef over their heads. They are competing in a global market beyond the reach of their democracy and often against powerful real estate titans with billions of dollars to invest in property. By erasing national borders, globalization comes close to eliminating national democratically determined policymaking too. Because while capital abhors boundaries, national democratically determined policymaking requires boundaries. How else can governments enforce taxation? How can they maintain a minimum wage, a welfare program, a national health service if borders are entirely porous? And if borders are porous, how can a nation contain and punish its criminals? Above all, how can a nation tax individuals and corporations that are economically active within its borders but globally mobile? The disabling of democratic government by capital mobility is, to my mind, a major factor in the popular nationalist insurrections we are now witnessing. Now, there's a wonderful new book out called The Globalists by Quince Labodian, which I highly recommend you read. He doesn't fully agree with this analysis, but instead argues in his book that the core of 20th century neoliberal theorizing involves what they called meta-economic or extra-economic conditions for safeguarding capitalism at the scale of the entire world. Um, Slobodian shows that the neoliberal project focused on designing institutions not to liberate markets, markets as we think, but to encase them, to inoculate capitalism against the threat of democracy, to create a framework to contain often irrational human behavior and to reorder the world as a space of competing states in which borders fulfill a necessary function. Slobodion goes on to argue that Hayek and his followers in the Montpelerin society were committed to insulating market actors from democratic pressures in a series of institutions from the IMF and the World Bank to port authorities and central banks, including the ECB, governance structures like the European Union, trade treaties like NAFTA and the WTO. So neoliberals offered a set of proposals designed to defend the world economy from democracy. They sure have succeeded in that aim, and it is time they were challenged because of the turmoil this is causing. So I want to argue, and this is the final part of my lecture, and I don't know how much more time I'm giving myself, that society has the power to subordinate the globalized finance sector, but is largely ignorant of the extent of that power. Which brings me back to the question of collateral and safe assets. The liberalized, deregulated global financial system depends heavily on a government asset for its functioning, for its stability, and for security. That government asset is backed by taxpayers. It is called government debt. 
government bonds or gilts, and without it, the plumbing of the global financial system, and in particular the shadow banking system, would quickly become clogged and blocked. British, German and US government bonds or gilts are the safest asset in the world. These governments have central banks, sound tax collection systems, a stable currency and good protection of property rights. They have never in peace times at least defaulted on their debts and all have acted to suppress inflation, thereby maintaining and even raising the value, or from a different point of view, the cost of their debt. Thanks largely to deflationary policies defined as austerity, there's now a shortage of this safe asset, government debt, this collateral. And so at a time of financial, economic and political volatility, there is huge demand for safe collateral, which is why German bonds today were sold at negative interest rates and why creditors paid the German government to allow them to borrow money from the German government. So the low supply of government debt tends to boost, in fact, it crowds in the creation of private safe assets. In other words, these synthetic assets created out there by the shadow banking system, in the f and they take the form of short-term liabilities, such as repos and commercial paper. And that is associated, of course, with an expansion of credit out there in the shadow banking system, which, as the European Central Bank argues, and the critical issue is where the pressure for safety contributes to the aggregate risk of the global financial system. But it doesn't just rely on government debt to collateralize its vast pools of cash, cash or savings. The, select, the sector relies heavily on taxpayer-backed central banks for liquidity and low rates of borrowing. You and I cannot borrow at 0.5% from the Bank of England, but the globalized finance sector can. You and I cannot exchange assets for cash or liquidity with the Bank of England, but globalized banks can. Above all, the Bank of England manages and maintains the value of the currency, central to the speculative activities of the finance sector. But the value of the currency in turn depends on a sound tax collection system. I've worked in countries like Malawi, where they don't have a sound tax collection system, where they don't have the institutions that underpin their monetary system. And as a result, they don't have any money and their currency doesn't have value. But not so in Britain where 30.3 million British taxpayers regularly pay their taxes, right? This underp d underpins the, the Bank of England. The fact that many corporations don't do that is by the by. The Bank of England, the ECB and the Fed all uphold and protect the private globalised financial system and we in turn as taxpayers uphold them. Without us, they would not have that power and authority. The Bank of England, after all, is a nationalised bank. It is, in effect, another government department. It depends for its power and authority on our democratic political system. But equally, it depends for its power on you and me, the 30.3 million taxpayers that regularly pay our taxes and thereby give the bank its authority. It is, of course, worse than that. As taxpayers, we guarantee deposits in private banks, up to £75,000. No other private enterprise, no maker of Nike shoes or the grow of tomatoes, enjoys such generous taxpayer guarantees. As a result, banks today are even big, take even bigger risks than they did before the crisis, knowing they are too big to fail. And we, the taxpayer and the public, aware of this dependence by private profit-making institutions on our tax revenues and our goodwill. And do we and our political representatives use it to demand monetary action, terms and conditions of the banks? No, we don't. 
And worst of all, in terms of accountability, is the taxpayer-backed ownership of what was once one of the biggest banks in the world, the RBS. We paid 40 billion bucks for that privilege. The government sale a couple of weeks ago of 7.7 RBS stock in June was undertaken at a loss of 2.1 billion pounds for taxpayers compared with the amount paid for the shares in 2008. There were no signs of revolt from taxpayers. The taxpayers' alliance remained stum. No objection was raised. Have we used our power as owners to demand terms and conditions? No. Labour's Chancellor Alistair Darling came under pressure back in 2009 to act. John McFall, the former Labour Chairman of the Treasury Select Committee, and John Moulton, a private equity boss, good old capitalist, wrote to the Financial Times, let us get it over with, nationalise the pair of him, they mentioned Lloyds and, and, and uh, RBS. But Mr Darling was not persuaded. He, wrote, he said later, there are quicker and easy ways to get credit flowing into the economy. He really did not want to do that. He was booted out by the electorate, which went on to elect successive governments that have allowed the RBS to operate as an independent private corporation in which growing private shareholder value is deemed to be the sole objective of the bank. As Ian Fraser argued in evidence to UK Parliament, taxpayers are in effect dependent on US regulators or US lawsuits to get to the bottom of the malfeasance and alleged criminal behaviour of RBS and other UK banks, both before and after the crisis. It goes on. It's still going on. The fact is that the private globalised financial sector is deeply entwined with and dependent on public taxpayer-backed monetary systems and yet treats those systems and taxpayers with contempt. Do we understand that we can play this important role in support of the finance sector? What do we get in exchange for this great power in support of the finance sector? Very little indeed. The one thing we can be certain of is that the deregulated financial system that trashed our economy in 2007-9 will do so again. And we can also be certain that the costs and burden of recovery will be shifted onto the shoulders of taxpayers. Ashoka Modi, who is in Dublin this weekend, warned that the Irish... Uh, financial system, the Irish, Irish economy, is again to crash again catastrophically. But his prediction is that this time it won't recover. And that wouldn't surprise me. So what is to be done? Corbyn-led government is to subordinate finance to the interests of society, then it will be necessary for citizens to stiffen the spines of politicians and make them as courageous as President Roosevelt was when, in 1933, he and his government dismantled the gold standard, managed the exchange rate, ended the depression, defeated fascism, and restored employment, profits, and prosperity to the American people. He, above all else, he defended democracy in Europe, Democracy was defeated by fascism. The first priority of a democratically elected government must be to repatriate power stripped away by the globalised markets and regain the power to manage the economy. It's common sense that the economy must be managed, not controlled, to achieve stability and prosperity. And that is not terribly difficult to do. The first requirement is for credit creation to be managed through the Bank of England, guides commercial banks who are beneficiaries of uh, central bank largesse to aim lending at productive income-generating activity and not speculation. Currently, something like 80% of British bank lending is aimed at the residential property market in the speculative hope that property prices will rise forever. We know already that in London they're already falling. It don't happen like that. 
So it was good to hear John McDonnell announce last week that a Labour government would require the Bank of England to oversee bank lending to ensure that it was aimed at sound, productivity-enhancing investment and not at speculation. Secondly, we need to manage interest rates. This is really important. Government, uh, you know, and the way to manage interest rates is for governments and the central bank to issue more debt and to issue debt over the spectrum of periods of time and over uh, motivations for, for, for borrowers, for savers. In other words, short-term debt, medium-term debt, long-term debt. Uh, safe, risky, and, and, and so on, in real terms. And the increased supply of safe collateral, so vital to the stability of the private financial system, would expand. A Labour government should work with the Debt Management Office to issue government debt at different maturities and to satisfy the different motivations of those with surplus capital wishing to invest that capital uh, short-term for security or for speculation. So government investment and spending will in turn create employment which will generate profits and income for firms and individuals. We all know from our own experience that employment generates income. And those in turn will generate the tax revenues needed to balance the books and pay the debts. But the management of interest rates will not be possible if the government and the central bank does not manage capital flows across borders. I'm loath, as I say, to use the term controls. Central banks and governments do not need to control flows. They merely, manage them, merely need to manage them to ensure financial stability and to restore policy autonomy to the central bank and government. As Professor Helen Ray of the London Business School argued at the 2013 meeting of central bankers at Jackson Hole, there is little robust evidence of the po positive benefits of international capital flows. Instead, as the IMF has noticed, the costs in terms of increased inequality are prominent. Increased inequality in turn, argues the IMF, hurts the level and sustainability of growth. Capital control, the taxation of flows, is often dismissed on the ground that they can be evaded. But nobody argues that we should abolish taxes on the ground that they can be evaded. The fact is that an elected democratic government has a duty to manage the domestic economy in the interests of the population that elected them to power. And the next thing is also is the management of the exchange rate. Um, and currently the exchange rate is managed by a single uh, policy tool, i.e. the rate of interest. The government and the central bank should be able to buy and sell currency in order to stabilise the exchange rate, not just for the interest of Britain's importers and exporters, but in the interest of stabilising uh, trade across the world. Right now we have massive balances and imbalances, uh, massive imbalances in global trade. And then the final, and this is the really radical proposal, but it's something that we should all consider. We should think about nationalising pension funds. Right now, we hand over all of our dear savings, our monthly set-asides, to great big enormous management funds out there, like BlackRock, managing nearly $6 trillion of our savings. We don't know what they're doing with them, because they operate in the shadow banking system beyond the reach of regulatory democracy. We don't know if, those, if they're messing around with the creation of artificial new uh, artificial assets, uh, synthetic assets they're called, and that this could all go badly wrong. We don't know because it's beyond the reach of our central banks. That's our money. We need to understand that's our money 
and then we can have power over that money. And one of those powers could be to say we want to bring that money home. We want that money to be invested here in this country and not to be made available to global institutions who do what they please with it. Finally, we the people have power, potential power. And if taxpayers were to fully grasp and understand the power they potentially will, then they, or we, could challenge the defeatism of so many of our politicians. In other words, if the people lead, the leaders may well follow. That is why it is so important that we, the people, the taxpayers, should understand our power and use it. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you. That's the right answer. <laughs> I should take my book here. So thanks very much. Um, and this was uh, a really fascinating talk. Um, so we will take a few questions from the audience. Um, I think what we'll do is... The important thing is that you ask uh, really a question. You don't make a general comment, but you actually ask a, a question, um, a fairly short one, if possible. Um, and uh, we will pass around with the microphone and make sure that you speak um, once you have the microphone in your hand and make sure it's close to your mouth as well. Um, so, any questions from the audience? Yes, so the... If they could say their names as well. Yes, of course, if you could say, say your name and where you're from as well, that would be great. Hi, uh, Jason Manolopoulos. Thank you very much for the presentation. Vis-a-vis uh, -vis your last proposal of nationalizing pensions, uh, what do you think would be the effect when you have creditors and, and debtors fighting? And, for example, Greece had a nationalized pension system, and then the foreign creditors imposed their terms, bankrupting the national pension system. Yeah. Uh, should we have more than one? Because I've talked so Would much. Would you prefer? Yes. Give them a okay, chance very to good. speak. Uh, so any other questions from... Okay. Uh, the person at the very back there in the uh, blue shirt. Yeah. <coughs> Do you think there is a case for... Can you say your name? Uh, name is Rupani. Rupani? Uh, uh, and where are you from? Sorry. <laughs> uh, I'm an alumni, you see. Uh, the, there is a case for abolishing the uh, intellectual property rights, you see, because this uh, gig economy yeah. creates a lot of uh, inequality in such a way and, and rent-seeking authority. Yeah. Right. Thank you. Yeah. Maybe a third one? Um, Maybe the, the person in the front here. Uh, Paul McGrail, Peace News. Would you agree that um, uh, QE, quantitative easing, was, was a necessity when it occurred um, 2009, to, up until, ver, well, yeah. very, very recently? Um, and, and the way that it was dealt with by the... Uh, American Fed, Fed Reserve Bank, uh, the ba Bank of England, and the ECB. Wh what would you have said? What would you say was was mistakes were made 
because obviously all that asset purchasing seemed to have gone awry because the money that was the liquidity that was created yeah. was went into simply um, a, a massive increase in asset per, uh, asset values. Sure. Okay. Thank you very much. Okay. So, Jason, Greece and their pension fund and the role of creditors, no doubt, in privatizing that fund. Well, this is it, you see. This is the power of the international creditor with a sovereign debtor being able to dictate policy, to dictate terms. And the terms are always, please, can we extract gains? Please, we want to extract. We don't just want to be repaid our debts. We want to grab your assets. This happened in the Southeast Asian crisis. I remember watching as all the American banks moved into Thailand and into Indonesia and started to take over all of that. You know, this is, and it's geopolitical as well. Um, that's what makes it so difficult to have a, a sound insolvency framework for sovereigns. So, you know, I, uh, I sympathize with Greece, but, you know, Greece, I mean, that is a long and complicated tale. And it is a tale about how the bank has effectively, in my view, designed the Eurozone to precisely give that imbalance of power between sovereign debtors and creditors. But that's a whole long story. Rupani, you're absolutely right. Intellectual property rights are also a kind of collateral and an asset. So by, by getting the state, and we forget this, the state is the thing that, that, that uh, designates the, the thing as uh, the intellectual property of the thing. And it's the state that defends the price and value of that intellectual property. It's not the market, because the market would, would devalue it tomorrow, right? So the private sector goes to the state and governmental institutions and the, and the, and the criminal justice system and the judicial system to, to maintain the value of that collateral called intellectual property, and God knows what it is sometimes, uh, in the interest of the owner of that asset. Uh, it, the, the owner of that asset doesn't feel able to defend that asset in the open market. And indeed, when, when the asset ends up in China, it's surely, you know, where, where, where the, the criminal justice system doesn't protect uh, the value of the asset. Uh, now, now I'm, I'm, I'm in favor of intellectual property rights, you know, for musicians and, and for people like myself, you know, authors. But, uh, but this has been now taken to an extremes. Uh, so that you know, big corporations can ensure that their uh, interests are collateralized and, and turned into intellectual property, and then they get the state behind them, so-called, in, in their denial of the free market forces, get the state to defend it. And we don't understand why we allow that to happen. Paul QE, I absolutely agree that QE was absolutely essential. Um, I mean, I personally am really grateful that the central banks uh, took action because there was a moment in 2008 after Lehman's, there was a Saturday afternoon and a Sunday when, when we did not know whether or not ATM machines were operate on the Monday. And if that had happened, we would have had social and political collapse overnight, right? So, um, so it was absolutely essential. The problem with it was that it was so unbalanced. So I don't know if you remember, David Cameron said, I'm a monetary radical and a fiscal conservative. In other words, we're going to st steer the ship of the economy with just one wing, you know, this wing. The plane is going to fly like this, and this is going to be monetary policy and fiscal policy is going to be repressed. And we have the situation that we have, which is that 
central banks can only, and this is where I want to come back to the point about all money is about pairing, the central banks cannot give, provide liquidity or cash to uh, a financial institution if in exchange it cannot get assets, right? It needs an asset to be able to put on its balance sheet. Now we know that the Fed, for example, took some pretty toxic, toxic assets onto their balance sheets, but nevertheless there has to be that exchange. And when they're provided with that liquidity, and which is what they want. They get rid of all those, all those collateralized mortgage assets they had on their balance sheet, shove them onto the Fed's balance sheet or the Bank of England's balance sheet. Now they've got liquidity, what to do with it? And what they want to do with it is they want to put it in somewhere safe. Above all, they want something that is safe and yielding, yielding interest. So they went searching for that. There wasn't enough government debt to invest in, and there is still not a government, enough government debt, which is why interest rates are negative for, for, for government bonds, right? So they went after every other asset they could find, and one of the safer ones is property. But then any other asset would have done, because they need an asset which will generate income into the future. They don't want to hold cash. Nobody wants to hold cash, because cash doesn't earn you extra money, right? So, um, so that is why all that was then funneled into the assets. It could have been funneled into government debt, and that could have then be used for government to spend and generate employment and income and tax revenues. But we didn't do that. So instead, what we saw was asset prices rising, wages falling, and public services being demolished, and so on. And that's what caused massive inequality, and that's what caused massive anger and uprisings. So it's been a disastrous policy, ultimately, but not in my view because of the action of central bankers, but because of the inaction of politicians and ideologues, including those in the economics profession, who believe that for a government to spend in a slump is dangerous. You know, when the private sector fails, as it did in 2007 and 9, somebody has to stand up and take action. And the only, as Mariana Mozzicato says, the public sector, which is the roaring lion, steps in when the timid mouse, that is the private sector, uh, is too nervous to invest or too nervous to act. And we didn't. We, left, we decided that once the private sector had contracted the economy, we should make it worse by getting the government to contract it further. And that's why we've had austerity for 10 years. And that's why the British economy hasn't recovered. That's why in Europe they have very high levels of unemployment. And that's why they have social unrest. And that's why they have Marine Le Pen and Mr. You know, all the fascists that we see in, in, the, in the German parliament, the Austrian parliament, and so on. So it's been in that point of view. But I can't blame central bankers for that. I feel I'm ranting and raving here, Natasha. Better shut me up. Don't worry. <laughs> um, so. I see plenty of hands. Um, and women as well. Good. Yes. Uh, person at the back over there with yourself. Yes, with the pink uh, cardigan. Thank you. Um, my name's... Can you hear me? Kim. Uh, no, my name's Liberty, and um, I'm studying here at the summer school. Yeah. Um, you ended with a rallying cry to taxpayers. And I was just wondering who else, sort of apart from yourself, is helping to educate taxpayers about this power that they have and then also raising their voice? And how can we help? Um, the person in the middle, I know it makes it a bit complicated, but with the grey t shirts, <laughs> no discrimination. <laughs> Um, Ricardo, and um, 
realistically, what are the prospects for uh, um, action in these is- in these areas you discussed at the European level? Um, the UK and the US have their own central banks, but yeah. the, EU, the EU seems to be stuck without any further reforms. We've just had Macron give uh, their modest proposal and Merkel responding yeah. kind of yeah. un- a chilly to that. Yeah. So what, what are the, realistically, what are the prospects in the medium term on these okay. areas in, at the EU level? Yeah. We'll take a third one. By the way, Natasha was reading out notes beforehand about disorderly conduct from the audience. <laughs> aren't they well behaved? And aren't they asking nice questions? Very Difficult well ones. behaved. Well done, guys. <laughs> um, okay. Um, the person in the red T-shirt here. And your name is? Uh, John. Yes, uh-huh. I'm just a member of the public. What's the future of the Tobin tax? Tobin tax, right. Good. So, liberty. Um, who else? Well, actually, I don't know. <laughs> I don't think there are many people talking about this. Uh, my colleague, Daniela Gabor, who is uh, an academic at the University of the West of England and is an expert on the shadow banking, is beginning to talk about these issues. She's, she's done a lot of great work on safe assets and the shortage of safe assets across the Eurozone. She worked also on the question of the uh, Robin Hood tax, as it's called in Europe. So she's one, that is, and, and there, are, um, there are others. Um, I'm currently a member of something called Progressive Economist, Economist Forum, and, and within that forum there are economists that are advocating this kind of action. But, you know, we're marginal voices on the whole, uh, and we need to get the word out. And we need students like yourself to take up and study these issues and find out more, to go around talking about it. And, you know, I I ran the Jubilee 2000 campaign for the cancellation of the debts of the poorest countries. And at the time when we launched, everybody said, oh, this is terribly difficult. You know, how do you explain to people about multilateral debt and bilateral debt and commercial debt and the net present value of debt over time. These are very complicated concepts and you can't explain this to people, you know. And halfway through the campaign, uh, civil servants came to me and said, what the hell is going on here, they said. Um, Gordon Brown has had to hire additional staff to deal with correspondence about the debt of the poorest countries. He said, we get letters from women on pink paper with bunches of roses in the corner saying, Dear Sir, I understand that you agreed a cut-off date for Uganda's debt cancellation of 1981, and may I say that I object to this uh, choice of cut-off date. And the guy said, How do they know about Uganda's cut-off date? And I said, Because we explained it to them. You know. So what, what that experience showed me was that most people really are really bright enough to get this stuff. You know, it's not rocket science. Economists would like you to think it's rocket science, and some of it is pretty complicated and takes a lot of digging and understanding. But on the whole, these are just basic concepts that all of us understand. But for reasons that I think are ideological, they are largely hidden from view, and it's for us to excavate them and bring them out again. Um, Ricardo, uh, at a European level, what are realistically the prospects for change? I agree with you. I, you know, I'm, when I'm not being optimistic, I'm being very, very pessimistic about the possibilities of change. I mean, we know from the history of crises between creditors and debtors since the beginning of time that you know, it takes a crisis 
to alter the balance of power between debtors and creditors. We know that it took the Second World War before economists were willing to sit around a table and construct a new financial architecture which was more stable than the one that had existed before the war. We know that. We knew that it took a world war for humanity to come to its economic senses, really. So, you know, I'm not optimistic. I mean, I watch what's happening in Europe and I'm filled with fear, really, for my, my children and my grandchildren. Um, but I don't know how... The only way to learn is by using our intelligence and by trying and, and not giving up. And John asked about the Tobin tax. I mean, the Tobin tax is just another one of those taxes on the flows of capital across borders, which are like sand in the wheels. Um, I was on the radio this morning, I noticed, uh, and uh, on the Today programme, and I mentioned that it would be important for governments to manage tax flows across borders. And Jesse Norman, who's a Tory MP, said it, I was... Did he say it was barking mad? So it's still discussed as being barking mad, but actually it was something that we did between 1945 and 1971, which is what gave us what is known by all economists, both on the right and the left, if you like, of, of, of professional economists. All economists regard that period as the golden age in economics. We had stability, we had financial stability, we had price stability, we had high rates of employment, we had prosperity, and we didn't just have it in the north, we had it in the south as well. So we know it can be done, it's been done before. And it was done by managing capital flows. Now, the minute Keynes and other, the lovely thing, um, Ed Conway, who is the uh, economics editor of Sky News, has written a wonderful book about the Bretton Woods Conference, which I do recommend everyone read about how bad the furniture was when they all arrived because the war and it hadn't been maintained the hotel was in a terrible mess and so it is, today it's a very posh place um, but he showed what I did not know which is that Roosevelt banned bankers from attending the Bretton Woods conference only economists were present at that time and many of them were from India and Africa and Latin America as well the minute they left Bretton Woods, Bretton Woods the bankers moved in and began lobbying Washington and diluted some of the proposals that came out of Bretton Woods. But, you know, we had a moment in time in history when we could devise a rational, a nearly rational international financial architecture. And even though the banks tried everything they could to undermine that architecture from the moment it was designed, nevertheless, we still had 30 years of stability. So the Tobin tax is just one of those taxes that would be used to moderate capital flows across Should we borders. get back to Bretton Woods then? <laughs> to be honest, I don't think there'd be any harm. But um, how to get there is the question. Okay, any more questions from the floor? Plenty of hands still. Um, the uh, person with the red tie at the back there. Um, thank you. Um, Andrew Lepage, alumni and now at the East London Waste Authority. So what was your name? Andrew. Andrew. Thanks, Andrew. Um, in a time of... Um, th th there seems to have been much criticism or playing down of hiring and those sorts of models of non-ownership, and yet in a time of increasing scarcity of resources, particularly from the environmental lobby, there's much more movement towards things like manufacturers retaining ownership so that they hire things out, they lease things out, 
and they retain, they then arrange the disposal of those things at the end of their life. Yeah. And the whole concept of that circular economy thinking seems to run at odds with much of what's being said about not um, about um, ownership never, never passing. Is that? Yeah. Do you see the conflict there? Yeah. Okay. Just a man in a red T-shirt there. Hi, Ahmed. I wanted to Ahmed. ask about, uh, yeah. uh, ask about um, taming finance in the UK particularly. So, so, sorry, I can't hear. I wanted to ask about taming finance in the UK particularly. Is it yeah. a particular difficulty here when we have such a powerful financial sector and you know, it's, such, it's, it's one of the few things that we seem to be uh, a debt exporter uh, yeah. in? Or is it actually the other way around, that um, we're not a debt exporter in all sorts of other things because we've had an untamed financial sector? Yeah, yeah. Women at the front. Oh, just, uh, just wait a second for the microphone. Thanks. Thanks very much for all you said. My name is Mary Holmes. Um, I, I don't want to be defeatist, but surely it's really, really difficult to do anything when um, just tiny movements are in finance. I mean, if you look at this guy, Robert Mercer, who's supposed to be behind, you know, all the things that have happened about Brexit and Trump and so on, um, you know, he has enormous finance. These people have such huge, huge power. I mean, how can you do anything when they can just, you know, buy the media and all that kind of thing? I, I mean, you know, I'm sure all you say is just completely true. I wish it would come into practice. Thank you. So, Andrew, the scarcity of resources and the circular economy. Yes, I mean, there's much that I admire about the sharing economy, and if only it were a sharing economy. But actually, it's a highly extractive economy, and that's my problem with it. Um, I think it's kind of been usurped for the purposes of extraction. So, and, and an extractive economy is not just extractive of financial assets, but of also ecological assets, eventually. You know, we have to dig up trees, and we have to fish the seas, and we have to exploit the earth in order to earn the money needed to repay debts, basically. So, um, you know, I hear your point about isn't it, wouldn't it be more effective, given the finite nature of resources, that we sort of shared it more and that, it and that assets circulated more. Yes, it would. But this extractive as aspect of it is the thing that's difficult. Let's do that by genuinely being a sharing economy. And that, that isn't exactly how it's turned out. So but this thing about taming finance in the UK, um, yeah, no, no, it's going to be really, really tough. I think it was, is it? Yes, it was Ahmed who said that. Um, no, it's going to be extremely tough, you know. But I want us to understand that we have leverage over these guys. You know, they need the Bank of England. They need guarantees on bank deposits. You know, uh, they need access to government debt. These are all things of which we, as a society and as a community, you know, have some control. And the really extraordinary thing is, I don't object to the bailout of the banks because the banks are like a, the sanitation system. You know, they really are important to the just the everyday maintenance of the economy. Um, but what I object to is that they were bailed out without terms and conditions, you know. They were told, go on and behave as you were behaving before. You know, that's why what Professor Vogel says about continuous coup d'etats is so true, because 
they're doing more of what they were doing before the crisis, since the crisis, because since the crisis, there was a moment, I remember the moment, when the bank sat back and said, oh dear, we're in trouble. We're going to have to bend over backwards. You know, I don't know if you've read Matt Tybee in Rolling Stone, but he documented the way in which, for example, um, Lloyd Blankfein paid himself $9 million, and he, he complained about how this was a shrinkage of his annual, uh, his annual uh, compensation and that he was taking less than usual, $9 million in 2009. And as Tybee's pointed out, you know, this was pure taxpayers' money. So, so what had happened was when the banks were, they had this moment when they thought they were screwed, and then they suddenly realized, no, all these politicians had very graciously given them guarantees and bolstered them up and bailed them out. And now they were back on top again. Now they can be even more dangerously risky than they were before the crisis, you know. And so, and I think it was because when the crisis happened, I have to tell you, I'm very proud to be here tonight because this is where the Queen came. The Queen asked the economist at the London School of Economics, why did you not see it coming? It's probably one of the most profound things she said in, in the whole of her, um, her reign, really. And they had no answer. Their answer was actually embarrassing because they did three weeks later produce an answer. I predicted the crisis, little old me, you know. I was like the little girl standing on the side in, in the crowd saying, the emperor has no clothes, right? So it didn't take genius, I can assure you I'm no genius, to see what was coming. Um, but the fact of the matter is that, um, you know, economists were unprepared for this. They were shocked when this happened. Politicians were stunned when it happened. And the public were completely befuddled. What on earth happened? Yesterday we're all booming, today we're all falling apart. And, you know, that sense of stunned horror meant that people were made impotent. There was nothing you could do. You can't do something about some, something that you don't understand. You can't change anything that you don't understand. You have to understand it before you can change it. And in 2008-9, we didn't understand that. And the economists didn't help us understand what had happened. Ten years later, there is a better understanding of what happened. There's a better understanding that banks got away with murder and we're paying the price, really. And the public are now more open to try to understand what happened, more open than they were pre-2008. You know, you could not have had this talk be before 2008. So I'm confident that, um, that with that understanding, we can do what we failed to do in 2008, which is to challenge the finance sector. And now we should be demanding terms and conditions. You can have a bailout, but these are your terms and conditions. Right? Or you can't have a bailout. You, you, know, you can't fleece the Irish people of $64 billion because you made lousy decisions and lent money to crazy developers who lied to you about the value of their properties and so on. Anyway... Um, and, and so, you know, and, and, I, and, and it's absolutely necessary to tame finance to, to help our exporters and our importers. So it's something that we have to do and we can do with a better understanding. And Mary's got more or less the same point, which is that, you know, this is huge power. And how do we challenge that power? Well, yes, they have got huge power. But you know what? They're damaging their own power. They are undermining their own system. The, the European Central Bank, which, from which I quoted earlier on, 
is incredibly nervous about what they're doing out there in the unregulated. They're nervous about it because they know it can cause another financial crisis. So the IMF representative to Ireland was in Dublin yesterday saying there's going to be another crisis and this time Ireland is not going to recover, right? So, so what's happening is that the finance sector is self-harming in a sense. It needs to be managed. It needs to be regulated for its own good. And right now it's, it's out of control once again. And, and when the next crisis comes, a lot of money will be lost. A lot of, asset, a lot of value will be destroyed. And a lot of people will go through intense pain, both at the very highest, you know, wealthiest, but also, you know, the rest of us. So, so I think, Mary, that, yes, they have huge power, but they're also vulnerable, and we need to understand they're vulnerable. And we need to be prepared for when their vulnerability breaks down the thing. It's a cheerful note. <laughs> I think we have time for uh, about three more questions. So, um, the person at the back in the blue shirt, then the lady with red hair. I'd like to. Your name? Yeah. It's Anne Brisby. Um, do you foresee another crash in Britain, and if so, when? <laughs> <laughs> Right. The lady with red hair. Hello, Sue White. I'm an alumni of the university. Um, you talk a lot about power. Mm. Maybe it's the realm of philosophy. You don't talk much about responsibility. Mm -hmm. And what are your views in terms of taking that into the debate? And apologize for slipping in the second one, but you also talked about how Uber is making um, its uh, drivers into capitalists. Actually, there are lots of instances in which ways that technology has been used to introduce novel cooperative financial models, um, micro-lending, local um, community funding, and so forth. Do you see any way forward in the power of the local um, and perhaps taking the moral high ground against the power of the global and their immoral practices. Right. Right. The, um, the person in the blue shirt there right at the edge. Hi, my name is Eric. I'm from uh, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Um, do you believe that the expansion of the, the shadow banking sector and algorithmic trading and high-frequency trading, all of that, is uh, causing an increased uh, rate and severity of these crashes? Right. Right. Um, so on the first one, and do you foresee another crash and when, can I say this, that I um, wrote my book, uh, which the publisher insisted on calling the coming first world debt crisis, in which I strongly objected to because I don't believe first world, third world. And I said to her, look, this is written in the spring of 2006. It's going to be published in the autumn of 2006, I said. And by that time, the crisis will have come and my book will be out of date, I said. I don't like this title. But she had legal rights over that title. 
And I have to say that as a result, I owe her big time, really, because the title itself did me a lot of good. But it's just an indication of how wrong I was about the trigger and the timing. You know, if I had, if I could tell you when it's going to happen, you and I could make loads of money. And I can't, I can't do that, I'm afraid. But I do think, and I just think it's as clear as, sorry? The probability of another crash is very, very high. And the question is, is a matter of timing. It was very difficult to know that pole dancers in Florida who had been granted mortgages, not just one, but five mortgages. You've all watched The Big Short, I hope, you know, and watched that wonderful cookie, the pole dancer, who's asked by the Wall Street guy, do you have an, uh, a mortgage? And she says, yes, I have. He says, is it at a variable rate? She says, yes, of course it's at a variable rate, i.e. it's going to go up. Um, and B, it was very high anyway. And then she says to him, but actually, I've got five mortgages, right? So her income was based on tips in the nightclub, and the banks had lent her, given her five mortgages. Right? Now, who would have known that that woman and people like her were going to bring down the whole global financial system when they defaulted on their five mortgages, right? Who would have known that? I would not have been able to predict that, but no, nor did anyone else. Of course, of course they were. Exactly, but because she was a pole dancer, they could charge her, I don't know, 15% on her mortgages. If they'd been lending the money to a professor of economics, they probably would have only been able to charge 3%, right? So they like risky mortgages because risky mortgages are far more lucrative than safe mortgages. And it's exactly what's happening now again. Again, risky assets are more valuable than safe assets, really. You can earn a higher yield on them. Yeah, we pay the price. Now that, you know, so the question is, so the answer is I don't know when that is likely to happen, but I am, I am sure that it is going to happen again because we've done nothing effectively to alter the architecture of the international We've tinkered at the, at the edges. We've demanded that banks have capital buffers and so on, but that's just a tinkering. We haven't done anything to change the architecture. So power versus responsibility. Well, yes, you know, I think we have a responsibility to understand our power as well. And they, have, they ought to be exercising responsibility in relation to the institutions, the publicly taxpayer-backed institutions that give them their power. But that is, as you say, that is not a feature of the debate these days. Um, but I'm doubtful. I, I agree with you that... What will happen, likely happen, is what happened in Argentina after the crisis, that communities come together, they invent new currencies, they lend to each other, they support each other, and they try and make the thing work. But it's very hard from a bottom-up perspective, at a sort of very localized micro level, to fix a macro economy. Really, you know, the responsibility of the government is to create the conditions in which those small cooperatives and so on can and function well. And I personally am very worried about micro-lending, especially in developing countries where the interest rate on the loans is incredibly high and the borrowers have to earn an awful lot of money to repay the debt. So Eric asked about algorithmic trading and all of that and whether or not that is going to accelerate. Um, I'm, I'm not sure, you know. I mean, I think these... These trading machines are pretty smart, really, um, but 
uh, we know from that recent in incident with the VIX, the volatility index, that actually you can have a sudden, and lots of money was lost on that day. Um, but I think it's more likely not just to be that, but to be something happening out there in the shadow banking system. Um, but to be honest, I can't tell you. I, don't, I mean, we don't know. Most of this stuff is beyond our ken and beyond the ken of central bankers. Central, bank, central bankers before the crisis, I know, because she told me so, relied on Gillian Tett on the Financial Times to help explain collateralized debt obligations. The Bank of England didn't understand these, these things that, that banks were creating. And I think still today, you know, it's very hard to expect civil servants, economists in the Bank of England to understand what the finance sector is doing because it's doing it in secrecy and, and you know, under a veil. Um, so I, I, don't, I don't know whether or not the pace and the speed at which these transactions are taking place will be the thing that will trigger the crisis, or whether it will be, I, I think it will be some other thing totally unexpected. The point is not to have such a vulnerable, volatile financial system, which can then just be ignited overnight by a simple error. You know, that is the point. The point is to have a stable financial system that doesn't, isn't easily um, inflamed, if you like, by some incident in, in the back offices of a stockbroker or whatever. Well, on this cheery note, um, <laughs> thank you. Thanks to everyone for coming. And most importantly, thank you, Anne, right, uh, for this you. brilliant talk.